This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the U.S., Bryce Zabel. Hey everybody, welcome to our new show. And uh, we had a really big week uh, a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed uh, Lou Elizondo here on the same day as those uh, hearings uh, that took place in Washington, D.C. Got the biggest amount of numbers on everything that you could ever ask for, which proves, I guess, that Lou Elizondo is a very popular guy when he goes on something like this, but also he's a controversial guy. All I can say is that there were more of you joining us uh, on our YouTube video and also in our podcast downloads than ever before in this show's history. So we assume that there's some new people watching and listening today. We want to welcome you to the family. We want to encourage you to spread the news, and we're very happy to have you here. It's been uh, it's been very gratifying to see that this uh, Need to Know podcast is taking off and reaching more people. And I want to bring in my co-host, Ross Coltart here. Uh, from Australia, and welcome you back to the show as well, Ross. Thanks for being here. Let's get going. G'day, Bryce. But first, before we start talking about that wretched UAP hearing, let's talk about your eye. I think our our audience deserves an explanation. We're a little bit later, aren't we, than we normally are? We are a few days later, and I had to take a palm tree or something. Uh, Well, I had to take some time off for sure. Um, I was uh, out in the backyard trying to, you know, be productive and trim a palm tree here in Southern California. And I had uh, sunglasses on, I thought was being protective and, and a palm frond went in through the top of my sunglasses into this eye. And it's been a kind of a dicey week. It could have gone even worse than it did. I think now the eye looks pretty good. I'm seeing well again, and the doctor tells me I've uh, mended up more or less, but it was scary. And I'll tell you something, it made me think about UFO disclosure. How so? (laughs) Well, everything makes me think about UFO disclosure, of course, but I'll tell you something. I was cruising along. We'd done that show. I was very happy with it. I was thinking about what we're going to do on our next show. And then this thing happened. And then instantly, it was the only thing I could think about, right? Everything else just fell away completely and entirely. And it wasn't until later in the week when I thought I'd maybe turned the corner that I was able to start thinking again about other things. And in a way, I think that is kind of analogous to what analogous to what a UFO disclosure may turn out to be. When it first happens, I think people are going to freak out a little bit and there'll be nothing that they can think about except that. And then as time goes on and they realize they're not dead and life is going on, they're going to be able to resume some version of their normal lives. So for people who are saying, let's not disclose to the public, let's not tell them what they need to know, uh, I think we should tell them exactly what they need to know, and that's why we have this show. Well, together with my one-eyed chum, Bryce (laughs) Zabel, I I think this week we're going to look at an estimate of the situation, which is a homage back, way back to 1948, when there was, in fact, done inside the US Defence Department what was called an estimate of the situation, created by Project Sign, and essentially um, it assessed some very dramatic things that we'll get to, but basically it, it looked at the issue of what do we know about this phenomenon? And it essentially concluded, didn't it, Bryce, that 
that extraterrestrials were making a full-scale observation of the Earth, but that attack did not seem imminent. Well, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what it declared. I just want to set the stage because this is so important. Uh, The current Department of Defense doesn't like to talk about history, doesn't like to talk about the things that happened before, but we do because we think people should be held accountable for what's gone on in the past. So just to orient everyone to what Ross was talking about, 1948, uh, a Defense Department study uh, initiated through the Air Force uh, put out uh, what they, they were asked to come up with, the estimate of the situation. In other words, you guys go look into the UFO situation, get back to us and tell us what you think is going on. And so the people who were tasked with doing that inside the Department of Defense uh, came up with the conclusion that Ross just uh, stated, which is they uh, thought the situation was UFOs and the estimate was they were interplanetary. Now, here's what gets interesting about that. That, as reports do, that one kind of made it up the food chain until it got all the way up to the the chief of staff of the uh, Air Force, uh, General Hoyt Vandenberg. And interestingly enough, Vandenberg not only rejected it, but he ordered that all copies of it be burned. Now, how do we? And there are no, there's no surviving copies, are there, of the estimate of well, the situation? Well, supposedly not. I mean, that would to me be like the holy grail of all things if that could uh, be found. But we know it exists. We know we that know it, it exists. exists because Ruppelt, who ran Project Blue Book, a guy we talked about in a previous episode, he's the guy that said, uh, he said in his book that it existed, that he had laid eyes on it. He mentioned uh, someone else, Air Force Major Dewey Fournay, who had seen it and who also said, that he had seen it and read it, and that's what its conclusions were. So I think we have to take these gentlemen at their word and and that that's what happened. So we're a couple of weeks on from the 17th of May UAP hearing, the first hearing on UFOs, UAPs in 54 years, over half a century. And we thought we'd be a bit cheeky. We'd basically do our own estimate of the situation because clearly the Defence Department's a bit shy about doing one itself. But we got... A bit of an idea, didn't we, Bryce, from what they think in the UAP hearing? And I think we should start this estimate by looking at the UAP hearing and then develop what we think is really going on. Because the whole idea of this show is to give a layperson a primer, not only about the history, but also about what's currently happening. So my gut reaction, my friend, from the UAP hearing, we were pretty merciless about it when we first did a story about it a couple of weeks back. But... My resolve has hardened. I think that what Moultrie, Ron Moultrie uh, and Scott Bray, two very senior intelligence officials from the Pentagon were doing in that UAP hearing was a significant walk back from even the findings made by the UAP task force report on the 25th of June last year. Do you agree? Well, I think it was uh, their attempt at a significant walk back. Uh, Whether it turns into the walk back that they get away with uh, remains to be seen. Interestingly enough, um, folks, we did one of our little need-to-know polls, and we got like uh, almost a 1,000 people commenting on it. And we asked people, uh, now that they had a few days to actually think about the hearings, or the hearing, the one-day hearing, uh, what was their take on it? And the four choices were disappointing, encouraging, not sure, and irrelevant. And I was surprised by this. 40% said it was disappointing. That didn't you know, make me too surprised, but 38%, which is basically a dead heat, found it encouraging. 
So I, I think that the UFO slash UAP community is divided on that hearing. And uh, we hope to weigh in today a little more on it because, I, uh, Ross, you are correct. It was disappointing to us. To me, it certainly was. And yet at the same time, this is, I guess, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I can be disappointed and encouraged at the same time. I am disappointed in what actually occurred that day. And I am simultaneously a little bit encouraged that it's not going to end there. But as I say, others may disagree. You may disagree. Now, look, one of the things that I think we should preface all of what came in the UAP hearing with was that DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, late last year, made a statement in Washington, D.C., that one possible explanation for what's going on here is what she used a word called extraterrestriality. Now, That's I think that was a very important red flag along yeah. the way. We hadn't heard that term yet. But for the first time, a very senior intelligence official of the US government, a serving intelligence official, was pointing to the possibility of extraterrestriality. And I think, mate, the, the glaring omission in the hearing from the 17th of May, the first congressional hearing, was that neither Ron Moultrie, the Undersecretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security, nor Scott Bray, the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, talked about the possibility, even the possibility of extraterrestriality. Probably, In fact, although, Ross, I should say the reason they probably didn't talk about that is they couldn't pronounce it any more than I could. <laughs> and I don't even know if you go to the dictionary, if it's a word, but I will say this, they should have paid heed to some of their bosses and the, uh, and the folks they take, uh, you know, they take lunches with in the intelligence business, because not only did Avril Haines suggest that we had to keep open that possibility, but uh, former CIA directors Clapper and Brennan have both in the past year, basically, uh, made statements that leave it quite clear that they're thinking about the very same thing. So it was uh, extremely odd to have people at the very top saying, oh yeah, we better keep our minds open to a really mind-blowing conclusion. Well, at the same time, they send these two, I don't want to call them lackeys because lackeys in, usually implies that they're lower level. These guys were not lower level, but they were clearly not there to have a meeting of the minds and share a lot of truth. They were not there for that. Now, I want to work through this because this is very important because I think there has been a walk back from the UAP task force report. And I'm really worried that what's happening here is that the Congress is being set up for a bit of a snow job by the Defence Department. And frankly, if they think they're going to get away with that, it ain't going to happen. So Scott Bray acknowledged that if and when UAP incidents are resolved, they likely fall into five explainable categories, airborne clutter, natural atmospheric phenomena, U.S. government or U.S. industry developmental programs, foreign adversary systems, or what the UAP task force called other, which is uh, what Scott Bray calls another bin that allows for a holding bin of difficult cases and for the possibility of surprise and potential scientific discovery. Now, the bear in the room behind yeah. that other category is the possibility that what we're talking about here is some kind of non-human intelligence. Well, what they Going back to the June 25th, 2021 report, they did call it a catch-all other Ben. 
which I just found to be one of the greatest lines in UFO history. And if I have a book on UFO history I ever write, one of the chapters will be called The Pesky Catch-All Other Ben, because clearly uh, if, if things were as normal as these guys tried to make it sound, then you wouldn't need a bin to throw all these other things in that didn't fit. And yet that's exactly what they've done. Now, you uh, have been doing some reading on all of this, Ross, and it seems to me that you're saying they're either trying, they're trying, it sounds like, to walk back even the other bin category slightly. Well, I mean, I th I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here, but one of the things that I leapt on was right at the very end of the hearing, uh, Representative Krishnamurthy asked about wreckage. And that was the that's the smoking gun question. Right. How about wreckage? You know, this is the apocryphal mythological story that somewhere in Area 51 or a cave somewhere in the Nevada Teft Range, there's a there's a flying saucer jacked up on blocks and they've been hiding it for 70 years. And so Krishnamurthy, to his credit, asks, How about wreckage? Have we come across any wreckage of any kind of object that has now been examined by you? And Scott Bray from the Navy says, the UAP task force doesn't have any wreckage that isn't explainable, that isn't consistent with being of terrestrial origin. Now, okay, that's interesting because one, what the hell's he doing talking about the UAP task force? I was going to say, Ross, if we're going to parse this thing, there's that thing is wrong on so many different levels because, again, the UAP task force predated uh, what supposedly is now the Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group, or AOMSGA, or as they called it, um, or, or what we call impossible acronym. <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 it seems like a dodge to me because they did refer over and over to the UAP task force, which supposedly has been subsumed into it. And also, I don't think anybody has ever actually stated that they think the UAP task force is in charge of crash wreckage. Uh, if we look at the historical record of crash wreckage, it goes back to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, uh, it, none of that would be true. It would have been in the Defense Department working with their private enterprise allies. You see, I like to think the best of our public officials, Bryce, but in my book, that was an evasion by Scott Very. Bray. And this is my problem with the representatives who weren't well-informed, weren't well-briefed, and weren't ready to hit with follow-up questions. Because the follow-up question to Mr. Bray should have been, Sir... I didn't ask you about what the non-existent, now non-existent UAP task force found about wreckage or whether it has wreckage. Your question limited itself to the answer that the UAP task force doesn't have any wreckage that isn't explainable, that isn't consistent with terrestrial origin. What the, the representative should have hit him with, I mean, this is the smoking gun question for, for heaven's sake, you know. Yeah. You You've even got officials like Lou Elizondo asserting that he believes that the United States government is in possession of anomalous technology, stuff that isn't possibly not human. He, so, he said it. He said it on multiple national interviews, not just podcasts. He said it on big mainstream shows. And he's not the only guy saying it. And a lot of uh, people are intimating it. So it does seem like uh, the representative kind of missed an opportunity to say, well, thank you very much for that answer. But let me go a little bit further on this. 
That, and that was my issue. My, my issue was so many times we strayed to the very edge. It was like everybody there knew, oh, gosh, we're talking about aliens, but right. we're embarrassed about that, so we're not going to talk about it. Right. But fundamentally, at the heart of all of this, what we are talking about is the possibility of non-human intelligence or a non-human technology of some kind that is now being detected in our atmosphere. And so the, the glaring bear in the room, if you like, was that consistently the answers from the two witnesses acknowledged that there is something here that they can't explain. And he even acknowledged that there are, quote, our effort will involve the thorough, this is Moultrie, Ronald Moultrie, the um, Undersecretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security, the highest intelligence official in the Pentagon. And he said, um, our effort with AOIMSG, impossibly named acronym, will include the thorough examination of adversarial platforms and potential breakthrough technologies, US government or commercial platforms, allied or partner systems, and other natural phenomenon. Nowhere in there was there a concession that overtly states, okay, we're looking at the possibility that this is extraterrestrial. Now, that to me is why I think this is a walk back, because oh. Everell Haynes stipulated that one possible plausible explanation that required examination was the ridiculously stated extraterrestriality. She was referring to extraterrestrial life. You know, I'll give you a more plain spoken word that they did seem to be using to, to walk things back. And it wasn't extraterrestriality or anything else unpronounceable. It was drone. All right. What I found that they did over and over, and I believe you feel the same way, is they tried to make it sound like, well, you know, this really could just be drones. Well, I don't think drones work quite the same way that uh, a lot of these uh, sighting reports lay it out. But I know that's a particular uh, bone of contention for yourself, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Oh, boy, I've got a lot to say about drones, Bryce, and I think we should get into that in the next segment of Need to Know coming up next. Hi, welcome back to Need to Know. I'm Ross Coulthard, and I'm working with my co-host, Bryce Zabel, doing what we're calling this week an estimate of the situation in the wake, I think two and a half weeks ago, of the UAP hearings before Congress. And when we finished off last time, we were talking about drones. We were talking about the fact that both Ronald Moultrie who's the former, actually the current top intelligence official in the Pentagon, and Scott Bray, another top intelligence official, they both started using the word drone, didn't they, Bryce, to describe the phenomena that are now being seen in the sky? Well, and it feels a little dishonest, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I don't think anybody uh, in this business, I'm certainly not, you're not, what, drones are a big deal. I mean, there are drones out there. There's lots of drones. Um, do we fly our own drones, uh, harassing our own ships hundreds of miles at sea? Probably not. So okay. well, yeah. where this came in, where this came in was when the chairman of the committee, Mr. Schiff, 
he basically put the hypothesis to Mr. Bray that these are commercial drones. And it was because Mr. Bray had shown a video of a very underwhelming, blurry object zooming past a jet cockpit. And then there was another video of a pyramid, triangular pyramid-shaped object that was shot on night vision above a Navy ship, an unnamed Navy ship. And these two videos were shown to the committee. And frankly, I don't know about you, Bryce, but I got the distinct impression that these were designed to completely underwhelm anybody who viewed them because they were, I suggest, possibly the least interesting videos one could possibly choose from the cupboard that I have no doubt the Defence Department have full of interesting UAP videos. Well, we, that was the essence of uh, our conversation with Lou Elizondo uh, on our last episode, where it, it's clear he has seen things that vastly exceed what uh, was being shown to the committee. And, and many other people claim the same, Christopher Mellon and so many others have obviously seen incredible things. So, you know, had either of those two witnesses uh, been free and clear to bring in the best stuff, they they would have done it and they would have blown some minds. So you do have to wonder what their motivation was for sure. Right. So Scott Bray, who's the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, he presented this video, the night vision of a pyramid triangular-shaped UAP hovering over an unnamed US Navy vessel. He then asserted they were, quote, now reasonably confident that the objects were unmanned aerial systems in the area. And essentially, he told Mr. Schiff, the chairman, some type of drone, some type of unmanned aerial system. And he suggested essentially that, that what they were looking at was essentially a bokeh effect, that the night vision goggles had distorted the SLR camera lens to create a pyramid triangular shape. Now, the bokeh effect may indeed be a plausible explanation for that particular imagery. But I just think at this point in the hearing, the public were being led astray because the whole drone issue is vitally important for an understanding of what was being explained before the committee there. And this is where I think the, the committee were failing to do their job because essentially <laughs> there's a huge issue with this drone claim, as you've already flagged. The incidents that we're talking about were very well explained by the Drive uh, online magazine way back in May 2021, and they explained that in uh, over several nights in July 2019, there were multiple drone swarms seen over Navy vessels at least 100 miles out to sea. It included the USS Kidd, the U.S. Navy destroyers, USS Rafael Peralta, the Russell, the John Finn, and the Paul Hamilton. So there was quite a, a number of U.S. Navy vessels. Now, the interesting thing to me, Bryce, is that when you look at what the drive very well reported, in the logs that were recorded by the crew, there's at least one reference to, quote, a white light hovering over the ship's deck, and that's taken from the ship's log. That doesn't sound like a drone to me. It doesn't sound like a commercial drone, which frankly is the impression that I believe the two Defence Department witnesses wanted the audience, the congressman and the listening public to come away with. The reason that I feel a little more maybe optimistic that the door is still going to get kicked down than you might, Ross, is that uh, we, I, we're, I think we can pivot the 
a point of contact, if you will, for this issue from we already know that there are objects out there that are defying flight characteristics characteristics. And that's been well reported and talked about. And obviously we have, we've attempted to talk about that on this show. Now, I think there are going to be Senate and further House hearings. And one of the things they might easily focus in on is, okay, you have invoked the D word many times, folks. That's the drone word. What we'd like to know is what are the flight characteristics of drones? Uh, because we'd like to know how that would explain some of these cases, like you were just talking about, uh, and and things that uh, were were talked about in the drive. These are wild characteristics for even drones, and it would be really impressive to to start to figure out whether it even could be a drone that would be doing those things, let alone why they would be doing them to our own forces. Okay. And, so and, then, and then finally, I guess the question about drones has got to be all right, you have come here from the Department of Defense. You're trying to make me think that these are drones. Sir, please tell us who you think is behind these drones. Certainly, the Department of Defense must have theories or you're not doing your job because your job is to keep us secure and safe. Who's building these crazy drones? And that's where I started screaming at the screen, watching these guys, because they're just sitting there meekly letting these two Defence Department officials lead the public into the impression that, don't worry about this, this is just commercial drones, it'll all go away. But the thing I find incredible, Bryce, is that the incident that sourced this drone's claim happened in 2019. So that's three years ago. Three years ago, and it's quite clear that the two top officials in intelligence in the Pentagon still have no bloody idea what those supposed drones were that were buzzing the U.S. Navy fleet off the coast of California. I I guarantee you, Ross, there's got to be guys in the Department of Defense who have more than a bloody idea about it. We just need to get them before Congress. Absolutely. And that's the issue. So there's a few issues I really want to drill into because this drone explanation really needs to be critically appraised. And if Congress people are going to be asking further questions, they need to be aware of these issues. I've flown drones. You know, I've, I've uh, one of the um, one of the explanations that was given was that these were commercial drones. And I've, I know most drones really can only go for about 28 minutes. And yet the encounter itself, the minimum encounter that the drive noted was about 90 minutes. This is a commercial drone, supposedly, hovering over US Navy vessels far out in the ocean, open ocean, 100 miles out to sea. And what the drive report very, very credibly and carefully did was investigate whether the other ships that were in the area at the time could plausibly have been deploying drones against these American Navy vessels. It didn't wash. There is no possibility that it could have been the passing cruise ship. I think there was one called the Carnival Imagination or um, a cargo vessel, the Alguita. Um, they did a thorough investigation. And, and this is where congressmen, Cong- representatives shouldn't have allowed themselves to be distracted by a ridiculous drone explanation. And and the, the simple fact is the drive concluded in their 2021 20, story 
commercially available drones are not commonly capable of flying for such long durations across great distances with speeds in excess of 45 miles an hour. We estimate the drones traversed at least 100 nautical miles in the July 14th incident. Furthermore, they were able to catch and locate a destroyer travelling at 16 knots in conditions with less than one nautical mile of visibility. The operators seem to have coordinated at least five to six drones simultaneously. Then there's the question of line of sight control and control methods in general, which make the capabilities described all that much more puzzling. It's just ridiculous, Bryce, when you actually look at the drone explanation. And not only that, I think we have to always keep invoking history, okay? And by that, here's what I mean. Uh, We know when it comes to UFOs that uh, there are some things in the UAP world that are exhibiting characteristics that are impossible. And uh, people then say, well, that could easily be our own technology or Russia or China. So then you have to go back and say, yes, but in the 1940s and 50s, would that have been possible? And I, I say the same thing. All right. If people want to now ascribe some of these things to just being our drones or their drones, folks, the Navy's been reporting things going on around their ships, going back to the 40s, 50s, 60s. Were these these incredible drones back then? I don't think so. So we have to look a little deeper. We have to say anything that is going to be used to explain modern UAP has to also explain past UFOs. And it also has to explain the times when those objects have demonstrated what Lou Elizondo, the former head of the Pentagon's UFO investigation program, has dubbed the five observables. And even Representative Schiff picked up, he's the chairman of the committee, he picked up on the fact that the original UAPTF report acknowledged that some of those 144 objects that they investigated exhibited flight characteristics that appeared to demonstrate advanced technology. Some of them appeared to remain stationary, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or they moved at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion. And that was an interesting point because Scott Bray from Navy Intelligence admitted under questioning that he knew of no foreign adversary who was capable of moving a craft without discernible means of propulsion. And he also, and this is something that I think people have missed, he also admitted that, quote, there is some degree of something that looks like signature management from some of these UAPs. Right. So he seems to be suggesting that these commercial drones that they've left the committee with the impression they are, are some kind of stealth technology that is actually cloaking themselves. So now we've got drones capable of Klingon cloaking devices. It's ridiculous. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. And, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I just, we were talking about Elizondo being on. And by the way, I just, you know, from time to time, we like to correct the record when we make a mistake. And one of the things that Lou said was he quoted Bob Marley saying, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And I just wanted to point out, that's a great quote. And Bob Marley did put it in his song, uh, Get Up, Stand Up, but it was Abraham Lincoln uh our 16th president, who said you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all of the time. And I think that applies to these hearings that we're about to have. Uh, There will be some smoke uh, thrown out there 
Uh, but if there's a fire out there, we're still going to see it. At least some of the people are going to see it. And I look forward to the very thing that you're you're doing, which is uh, you're you're taking the specifics, you're taking their own words, and you're digging a little deeper. I can't wait for a Senate hearing where Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is in there because I've seen her in operation on these hearings. She's, a, I believe, a former prosecutor, and she doesn't do what some of these congressmen uh, did in this last hearing where somebody tosses off an incomplete answer to something and you just kind of go on with your notes to the next thing. She says, excuse me, that's not the question I asked. I'd like to know. And I think that's where these hearings are going to start pivoting. A, they're going to get better witnesses in them. And B, they're going to actually uh, listen to what the witnesses proffer as their answers and demand better answers and more complete answers. I completely agree with you. And I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of this segment, Bryce. Yeah. So I just think we need to put a stake through the heart of the drone explanation. Either way, yeah. it's implausible. It was a huge security breach. You had Navy vessels being buzzed by drones, supposedly, some kind of un, un, unmanned aerial vehicle, they claim. But essentially, when you look at the logbooks, they're describing a large white light. So is the drones terminology an attempt to mislead and deceive? Um, there's you also know, some kind of... Uh, there's also a harassing action. Who was harassing? I mean, you still got three years on in what seems like an egregious breach of a naval training area, some power, some adversary, some intelligence brought some kind of object in that was interfering with the operations of a naval task force. And if this was a supposed foreign adversary spooking the US Navy in its own training area, where were these supposed drones coming from? And frankly, it doesn't wash with me. And I noticed Jeremy Corbell, who's, I think, quite creditably leaked some of the videos that we're talking about here that were featured in the, um, in the uh, Navy uh, videos. Jeremy Corbell issued a social media video uh, a couple of days ago where he basically said that the Pentagon should still release the other three sets of data they've got on these images, radar data, thermal imagery and deck footage. He accused the Navy of only showing the committee the green night vision goggle footage and frankly misleading them in the course of doing that. And he also challenged the DOD on why it still didn't say if it knew who the controller of those UAPs or whatever the vehicles were. He says, frankly, they still don't know three years on. Extending this argument is going to be the next battleground where, you know, for example, uh, most of the people who are listening or, or watching us right now have seen some version of those three Navy videos that were released back in 2017. Well, why not show the whole thing? You know, why not tell us? Why not show everything and 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 let us uh, let the chips fall where they may? Why not give us all the radar? Why not all the data on that stuff? I mean, and just before we hit off for the, yeah, the yeah. final segment, Jeremy Corbell also said that he's got numerous other videos that have been leaked to him from inside the Defense Department that he would be comfortable releasing if and only if the sources were given an immunity from prosecution for releasing them to him. So. Coming into segment three, Bryce, yeah. this is our estimate of the situation. Is the Congress really taking the issue seriously or are these show hearings? 
Are they actually going to front up and ask real questions? Well, you and I may disagree on that, but I'll tell you one thing that we're going to do on the next side of this break. Uh, there were a couple of key places where those two witnesses at the May 17th hearing said, I don't really know anything about that. And they were things that were just shocking that they would know nothing about and hard to believe. So you know what? We're going to try to do the Department of Defense a favor. And since their guys don't know anything about history, we're going to school them. We're going to school them good. Stay with us. We're back in a moment because you need to know. Well, we're back and and we want to go back to that famous May 17th hearing. I know it almost feels like we're beating a dead horse, but it's it's so important because it was, again, the first congressional hearing in 54 years when it occurred on May 17th. Now, one of the things that happened that was so curious to both Ross and myself is that on a couple of big issues, uh, Moultrie and Bray, who were testifying, sort of acted like, yeah, don't really know too much about that. And the one that really uh, needs to be dealt with straight up right now is where um, a representative, Mike Gallagher, literally tried to hold um, Scott Bray's feet to the fire on the issue of the idea that these UAP that he's supposed to be reporting on have routinely been noticed uh, interacting or near uh, nuclear power uh, and nuclear weapon sites, and that that should be something that he would know something about, primarily because They've also reported it, and most of what we know about these incidents in the past have come from Freedom of Information Act documents that have been released. But he did not believe that, Ross. He acted like, yeah, no, I I never really heard of that. How is that possible? The thing that shocked me, Bryce, was, and again, I keep on saying I like to think the best of our public officials. I mean, Ronald Moultrie and Scott Bray are the creme de la creme of yeah. the U.S. Defense Department's intelligence, you know, cadre of officers. They are meant to be the best of the best. Sure. They knew they were coming in and to talk to a committee about UAPs, UFOs. And they knew that the committee members were going to be asking them some curly questions. So I presume they'd prepared for this. I presume that they'd had briefings with their executive staff where they'd basically taken prepared questions. And surely to heavens, the most important question of all, the issue that's probably the biggest national security issue for the United States, is that its strategic nuclear deterrence has clearly for the last 75 years been a subject of interest for the objects. Let's make that specific. One of the things that he said he didn't really know anything about was the Malmstrom Air Force Base uh, uh, incident. And I think we should probably explain it to him. But I'll you do a better job because you just wrote about it more recently sure. in that great book of yours, In Plain Sight. So why don't you, uh, for the benefit of the DOD, just in case uh, Mr. Bray or Mr. Moultrie happen to be listening in and they're still not really sure about what happened at Malmstrom, I think you should tell them. Okay, Malmstrom's just a tip of an iceberg. There are multiple incidents, and my friend and colleague Robert Hastings, whose fantastic book, UFOs and Nukes, has told this very, very well. He's investigated ICBM sites all over the United States, and he's interviewed people who've crewed those ICBM sites, the places where intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles are stored and made ready for 
God, God forbid, the event of nuclear war. And one of the people I interviewed was a guy called Bob Salas, who was at Malmstrom in um, Malmstrom or Malmo, I've forgotten. But anyway, he, he was at one of the ICBM bases in the 1970s when literally all 10 of the nuclear missiles in his silo, in his evidence, went offline, one by one, as a gigantic red UAP object hovered overhead. And the interesting thing is there's just no there's no acknowledgement from either of these two witnesses. Moultrie and Bray feigned ignorance of what, frankly, I think is an extraordinarily significant event. And if you read the UK Condine report, the UK Condine report, which, frankly, any competent invest in intelligence official should be across, it acknowledged 25, 30 years ago the British government had spoken to Russian commanders, right. namely a guy called Colonel Boris Sokolov, who acknowledged at the end of the Cold War, at a time when the Russians were talking to us, that the Russians had had actually incidents where their nuclear missiles were wound up. They were literally one button press away from launch. So whatever the phenomenon is, it's demonstrated an ability to meddle with nuclear weapons, the most Absolutely. dangerous weapons on the planet. That's why this matters. And for two intelligence officials to make the specious assertion that they had no knowledge of that kind of incident, frankly, is where I started to think that we were being snowed. It was a snow job. I just, you know, you brought it up. I just want people to know about this book. It's a great book, UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites by Robert Hastings. I've been reading it again over the past few days. I mean, that's a lot of information about nuclear weapon sites that have, have come up. And for them to pretend they knew nothing about it, another great book that talks about it is UFOs in Government, A Historical Inquiry by Michael Swords and Robert Powell. This is another fantastic read. And the point I'm making is not that I can hold up books, which anybody can do, but that there is information that's already out there in the public where researchers and, and analysts and people like uh, Ross and myself can go get that information. So it's really ironic that the the military guys act like they've never heard of it or they, they'll, oh, I'll look into it. Uh, it's already out there. And you mentioned Robert Salas, who is a great patriot. He is the the man who was in charge at Malmstrom when this happened. And by the way, it wasn't just a red light. To the best of my reading on this latest thing, they also saw structural craft. All right. I, I, I saw a, 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 a reference to a disc. So these were people calling Robert Salas saying there's a disc out here. And then these 10 nukes go offline. And, and it isn't like this has been a hidden secret. Uh, as early as 2010, uh, Salas and a number of other uh, military officials who I point out were, were trusted to watch over America's nuclear weapons, weapons that if fired could end the world because they would have created a counterattack from the Soviet Union. And yet they don't know about these guys. They held a news conference at um, the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and they laid out their case. They did it most recently, just another year or so ago, I believe. And, and listen, it isn't just the military, and life is changing, but 
on that 2010 one, I remember reading that the Washington um, Post sent their re sent a reporter over to cover it. But guess who they sent? They sent a lifestyle reporter who began his story about nuclear weapons being buzzed by UFOs by describing the chocolate chip cookies at the uh, at the press club. This is an overall problem, Ross. It isn't just the military. The military is using this as a way to obfuscate what's going on. But but it, they've had um, help from ourselves. Our own representatives in the media have been complicit in sort of selling this narrative that, oh, ha, 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 it couldn't really be happening. Well, it has happened, and you don't have to take our word for it. The U.S. military were the ones that wrote these reports that are in these books I'm talking about. Exactly. I mean, indeed, if you read Robert Hastings' book, it cites FOI documents that talk about these incidents. So for two of the top officials in the intelligence section of the Department of Defense to assert that they have no knowledge about nuclear weapons being a subject of interest by these UAPs, including incidents where, as the... Um, TV show that TTSA did, uh, Unidentified, they basically talked about objects firing beams down at, for example, RAF Bentwaters in the United Kingdom. There is clearly a technology, a solid physical technology craft, vehicles of some kind, hovering over US nuclear facilities where the most dangerous weapons yeah. in the world are stored, and they're taking an extremely close interest in that weaponry. And for two officials of the United States government to swear to a congressional committee that they they didn't know about this, that they're not briefed about this, that's just appalling. It's I mean, appalling. Frankly, it's, the it's fact appalling. that they haven't been briefed about that is yeah. a disgrace. Now, you know, to go wind this back to the hearing aspect of it, um, I literally was just in conversation uh, by uh, uh, by Internet today with Robert Salas. And Robert Salas is getting prepared to do what? To testify at hearings. But guess what? Not U.S. hearings. He's been invited to go to Brazil and testify. All right. And I think it's fantastic that he's doing that. And I, I, I have a, a high expectations for the Brazilians who seem to have taken this uh, uh, whole situation very seriously, more seriously, at least publicly, than the U.S. government has over the years. And so uh, my advice to anybody would be, uh, you know, Robert Salas is uh, not only a patriot, but he was a, a man of impeccable uh, honesty. Bring him into Congress. Let him tell his story. He's told it a thousand times, but he's never been allowed to tell it in front of the American people in a congressional hearing. And I think it would be a, an excellent way to start. And, and frankly, I hope if they ever do uh, pull Robert Salas and people like him in to testify, I'd like to see Moultrie and Bray sitting in the front damn row and, and taking notes. That's what I'd like to see. So, Bryce, where are we at with our estimate of the situation? What, hmm. What's your take on the phenomenon? Because, frankly, I'm very glum after those UAP hearings. I do not detect a willingness uh, and aggression by congressional representatives, and I do not detect a willingness to engage by top intelligence hmm. officials. The, the feeling overwhelmingly that I take away from the first of the congressional hearings is a sense that we have no cause to feel that there is going to be any full disclosure by the US government. They're being disingenuous. At worst, they're being deceitful. And 
possibly, you know, to give them the best possible explanation, they were just very poorly briefed. I mean, for example, one of the other things they didn't talk about was the Admiral Wilson document. Absolutely. I mean, uh, okay, so uh, we talked about that on our last show, how, uh, uh, again, it was uh, Gallagher um, who who basically put the the so-called Wilson Davis memo into the congressional record, which is one of the more radical things that's ever happened. Now, I got to tell you, and I'm full disclosure for myself, um, I had a hard time getting my brain wrapped around the Wilson Davis documents. Uh, for years, I've had people try to explain it to me. And I listen, and it seems to go in that side and come out the other. And it wasn't until, frankly, Russ, that I read In Plain Sight, where I thought you did a very excellent job of explaining what it was all about. And so I think you should probably do your very excellent job one more time for people. Because, again, this is something that these two guys who sat and testified claimed they knew absolutely nothing about. And... Uh, yeah, we'll uh, maybe I'm we'll just going to have some fun here, Bryce. It was yeah. like I think Ronald Moultrie turned to Scott Brown and went, "Oh, you know anything about the Wilson document? <laughs> you know anything about it? No, 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 never heard about it." So seriously, this document, this document purports to be a record of uh, notes taken by Dr. Eric Davis, a very well-respected astrophysicist who currently works for Aerospace Corporation, who at the time these notes were taken in 2002, was working for Robert Bigelow, the private space entrepreneur through his organization known as NIDS, the National Institute of Discovery Science. And somehow as a course, in the course of his research into the phenomenon, Eric Davis managed to wangle a meeting with the immediate former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a very big kahuna in the US Defense Department, Admiral Tom Wilson. Now, everything I'm about to say here didn't happen, according to Tom Wilson. Admiral Tom Wilson has said to me, for the purposes of writing my book, and he said publicly to other journalists like Billy Cox and um, uh, numerous other people who've approached him, he said this conversation didn't happen. But the reason it matters is because notes of this purported conversation emerged from the estate of Edgar Mitchell, the former well-respected, highly regarded Apollo 14 astronaut. And uh, when Edgar Mitchell died uh, a few years ago, I think 2016. These notes were passed on to a uh, person who saw their historical significance and made sure they came out, came out to the right people. Now, I preface everything I say here by saying we cannot rely on the Admiral Wilson notes. But the reason they are significant is because if they are authentic, and some people suggest they might be, and indeed the author of the notes allegedly has conspicuously refused to deny their authenticity. It's very important because those notes describe essentially a crash retrieval program inside the US government, the most incredible <laughs> conspiracy. And as a friend of mine said to me over the weekend when we were talking about them, he said, look, Ross, I just don't believe them because they read like a movie script. And they do. They read like a movie script. You've got a private aerospace company that is caught by Tom Wilson secretly concealing recovered alien technology in a private aerospace facility. And it, it's been hidden away by some kind of dark conspiracy inside the Defence Department. And it's only known by a few key people in the Defence Department. But 
essentially the allegation is that sometime in the late years of the Cold War, around the late 1980s, we recovered a life form and they recovered a craft and that that craft has been um, where they discovered a, a life form. And that, uh, this is echoing, of course, things that were told to Tom DeLong sure. in the, the WikiLeaks notes. But essentially the allegation is that there is a, a craft, multiple well, craft, somewhere inside private aerospace. And if they're true, and again, I think you did a good job of disclaiming that that they might not be true, but if but if they are, they're explosive. And one way to resolve it would be to drag those people in front of Congress and make them swear an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and, and see what they say about it. That's the but, point. Is that the easiest way to fix this is, as you say, just so, to so I do find it okay. Um, there's two issues there on those that we talked about that. Um, Messengers, uh, Moultrie and Bray didn't actually know anything about. The first is absolutely inexcusable. That is the connection between nuclear weapons and uh, the UFO issue. That's inexcusable. They've been all over it. The Wilson Davis memo, uh, I would think that they would have a knowledge of it, but whether they, you know, give credence to it or not, uh, you know, listen, it's it would be easy for them not to. They could have dodged that bullet. I just want to answer your question because I know we're running out of time. And you took a stab at saying what you thought the estimate of the situation was. And I would just like to say that's a two-part answer that we're never going to get to in this particular episode, um, despite calling it the estimate of the situation. Part one is, okay, well, what are we, are we optimistic or pessimistic in our estimate of what the congressional hearing uh, situation is? And then part two is, well, what do we really think is going on? These are very big, different questions. Um, I am not um, pessimistic. I do share your frustration that we've been mis misled. I think this horse is out of the barn. Uh, my assessment is, uh, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, not saying we're not going to get our hair must in this whole thing, but I am saying that uh, it's it's moving forward. And uh, these hearings are going to continue. There'll be other hearings and there'll be explosive things. And just as you know, one example, uh, when we were talking about the polls, I put one out the other day that said, imagine you wake up next week and someone somehow has leaked an extended HD video shot by the US military of an obviously solid technological object that is clearly outside our current capabilities. What happens then? Nearly 2,000 people voted on it. It's interesting because this goes to the source of your, your sort of pessimism. 47% of our respondents said nothing will change change, even with a giant HD video. 34% uh, said everything will change. The rest didn't know or didn't care. Um, I, so I, I, I take your point, Ross. It is possible that somebody could literally dump the truth in front of people and they'd still go, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether to believe anybody anymore because that's the world we live in. So yeah, you might be right. There might be some good reason to believe we're not going to get to the bottom of it. I don't believe it. I think we are. I think it's coming. I don't think it's happening before this election. I think it's happening uh, in 2023. I'm going to leave our listeners and viewers with this document. This is the slide nine document that I keep on coming back to. In my estimate of the situation, I think that the conclusions that we're eventually going to reach about the phenomenon lie inside this advice that was given to the Undersecretary for Defence by members of the ATIP program. And essentially at the heart of it is the sense that what we're talking about here is something that is far more complex than 
extraterrestrial phenomena, a, a life from another planet. Essentially, whatever this is, it's capable of psychotronic weaponry, a cognitive human interface, penetration of solid surfaces, instantaneous sensor disassembly, alteration and manipulation of biological organisms, anomalies in the space-time construct, and unique human cognitive inter interface experiences. Whatever was considered phenomenon in the past is now quantum physics. Oh. My estimate of the situation oh. is my estimate of the situation is slide nine, Bryce. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the best explanation is extraterrestrial, and that's what Jacques Vallée has said all along. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason why the Defence Department is being evasive with us, is they have no bloody idea what they're dealing with. And this is the advice. The reason slide nine is so important is because this is the advice that was given to the Undersecretary for Defence by their own UFO investigators. And I think this document has been ignored by too many people. Well, you know, Ross, Roscoe, I was ready to go to the break and say goodnight, folks. Uh, we're out of here. And then you had to throw slide nine on here. And that slide nine in the fire has... You know, the whole thing is up. Okay, I do agree with you. Uh, slide nine, which, by the way, we should go into in more detail in a future show. Uh, I do think that pulls the curtain back quite widely to say there's more here than the simple explanations. But if I was going to put my estimate out there, and again, this is just my estimate uh, from doing the same thing you've been doing, which is reading, thinking, studying, talking to people. Um, I think we're going to find out that there it's it's not A or B, it's all of the above. Uh, so I do think slide nine gives you the peek behind the curtain. Uh, is there an extraterrestrial component? Uh, when the truth is known, I'm going to say, yes, there's going to be an extraterrestrial component to this as well, because all of that could still coexist with the slide nine stuff that you talked about. So I guess we should get out of here. Well, it's been lovely talking to you all. We'll be back next time to blow your minds even further. We can handle the truth, folks. People get ready. We need to know. Need to Know with Coltart and Sable is a joint effort of Stellar Productions and Powerful Owl Productions. I'm producer Rich Johnson, and you can learn more about the show at needtoknow.today. That's needtoknow.today. Today.